welcome to cii podcasts it's really an honor and privilege for me to have a conversation with uh, mr borge brende the president of world economic forum also a very personal friend today's focus for discussion is primarily on the current world trading environment which all of us know is passing through a turbulent time due to massive disruption caused by covid-19 pandemic is still here and this of course adds further uncertainty uh, many of the free trade agreements have been signed by uh, different countries followed by mega ftas which we all know tpp rcep ttip giving the impression that the global trading zone would be compartmentalized in three major regions definitely uh, the trading system needs a redressal i think we should all work towards strengthening wto can we weaken the voice of protectionism what is happening what has covid done what will be the long term impact of this in the in the trading regime we have seen the economy getting revived in almost almost all the countries but the supply chain disruption continues to imbalance the trade so so borge before we before i come to any specific questions would you give a comment on the general situation that how you see it well thank you uh, so much uh, hare i will do so uh, with pleasure but i would say it was surprising how well uh, the global economy and the global value chains uh, were handling uh, the first year of the covid i would have thought that they were going to have uh, much more uh, challenging times but they were holding up pretty well but we're seeing now uh this uh, year at the end of this year that uh there are challenges when it comes to the global value chain and the reason why is that as i already mentioned is the um, accumulated demand that is now um really um come surfacing we see it when it comes to the energy prices oil uh, gas uh, and even coal and this is because people are again starting to travel people are again uh using uh, more energy uh, factories that are going uh, full speed and uh, we see it also when it comes to um specific uh areas where we know that there uh, is a huge demand uh, for example on semiconductors microchips uh, in all kind of products being cars uh, being aircrafts Uh, being also in the ITC sector it is also some minerals like rare earth we know bauxite for the aluminum uh, is also uh, under huge um, huge uh, pressure and then we know that uh, on the logistical side there's also challenges we know uh, that uh, for example when you see pictures outside singapore or los angeles there are hundreds of container ships then lining up and the price for a container Uh, has increased three times threefold just uh the last month so it shows us that we have to do also long term investments when it comes to ports uh, roads and also uh when it comes to infrastructure generally but 
If we look at the outlook, and I'm not gonna make a long speech on this, but uh, if you look at the economic outlook for 2022, we're cautiously optimistic. I think the growth is back, but we will see uh, also um, some real challenges. And we're not out of the woods before we also have dealt with this pandemic. Hopefully uh, this Omicron is now uh, the end of this uh, pandemic, but we don't know. There can be new variants also uh, um, kind of uh, uh, out there that is, um, is happening. But we hope that this is uh, then, uh, and their indication is more infectious, but hopefully less lethal. And that can be an indication that we're seeing uh, the beginning of then, but who knows? Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> since you mentioned Omicron, does it not worry you in terms of uh, having this, this second big impact on everything, a bigger disruption now? Or do you think it can, uh, uh, now we are more prepared, uh, people are working through it, uh, what is your sense? No, thank you, Harry. Um, it's, it's, it's a tough question. It's like look, looking into the crystal ball. And uh, I'm not, uh, um, of course, um, an expert uh, in this uh, field. And, uh, but uh, we do know um, and we do have some information. Of course, it's, we are in a very different situation now compared to last year because we have the vaccines. And uh, the vaccines protect you um, from uh, the really, really bad outcomes of an infection. So if you look at those that are hospitalized, for example, in Europe, it's mainly people that are unvaccinated. I cannot understand that people are unvaccinated when the vaccines are available. And um, it's also a question of solidarity, of course, because if you take up hospital beds and you're unvaccinated, uh, it is affecting also other people with uh, cancer, um, heart disease, and, and etc. Then uh, there are indications that Omicron can be uh, more infectious. There are indications that it is uh, less severe, but we don't know yet. And then the third thing that, of course, makes it more challenging is that uh, we have seen more breakthrough cases with Omicron uh, than with Delta. And that's why the booster piece is very, very important. We see that with the booster, you will have the same protection against Omicron as you had with two um, vaccines uh, against uh, Delta. But um, definitely those that are vaccinated, even with Omicron, uh, they will not get uh, uh, really, really sick. So that's also a game changer because of course what people are used to is the influenza, the flus. But as long as you know that it takes a week and, and you will uh, hopefully recover, uh, then uh, you handle it. And then uh, if you know that you're double vaccinated, you're waiting for your booster and you can handle this Omicron by staying isolated and all this, we're in a different context. So we are also more used now to handle uh, the situation with uh, a pandemic 
uh, around, a pandemic that there are reasons to believe it's becoming more endemic, meaning that it will be around also for the future, but it is something that we uh, can handle. But if we see more severe lockdowns because the hospital capacity is breaking because a lot of unvaccinated people um, still will occupy the beds is very, very unfortunate. So I think we will need stricter and stricter rules also when it comes to the health measures being taken. Personally, I'm much more optimistic uh, in December 21 than I was in December 2020 because we developed those vaccines in less than a year and they are effective. We will also soon get um, uh, vaccines that are basically really uh, attacking uh, Omicron, uh, maybe in two, three months. But as I said, a booster uh, gives you, at least for uh, some months, uh, really the protection you're needed. And if you're double vaccinated, um, you uh, will, uh, it is not a lethal, uh, this Omicron. No, what you, what you said, I, I fully agree. Uh, and from business point of view, I can say businesses are more prepared now than last year uh, for business continuity. And uh, unless a severe lockdown situation happens, I don't see uh, uh, disruptions, large disruptions. So from continuity point of view, uh, I think worldwide people are much more prepared to deal with it. So thank you for that. And coming back to uh, uh, trade, as we uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, you know, the two largest economies in the world, we saw the impact of trade war and, and of course, uh, both in, in large number of countries blowing clamor for protectionism. And this COVID-19 has added further momentum to, to this deglobalization, local manufacturing, uh, in, in a way, it's good because you want to be dependent on supply chain locally because uh, depending on uh, countries too far away from you can can lead to disruption. So it's logical, but I don't think uh, we can create islands of, uh, of uh, manufacturing or and protect ourselves and, and not trade with others. So that's that's quite clear. Uh, as you know, in America, we have saw America first policy, even in China, you know, what, what number that surprised me about China was that uh, in 2010, almost 35% of GDP was for exports. And today it is 20. Now, I was surprised to see this number. And, uh, and even in China, they, they call it made in China 2025. They want to depend, they want to import less. Uh, and manufacture more locally. And, and a similar trend you see in India, we want to be Atmanirbhar, we want to be self-dependent, as they say, uh, which is true, develop local manufacturing, not, not be dependent on single supply source. So how do you see this, uh, uh, this trend? Uh, pandemic has accelerated it. Uh, and uh, how do you, where will it stabilize? And, uh, and what can we do, all of us? No, very uh, good question, uh, Harry. And also 
on your observation about um, the second largest economy in the world, China, now uh, being less dependent on export uh, compared to the past. And that has been a policy that the central government also has uh, had a lot of focus on, uh, creating more of a domestic market and a domestic demand. But let me, uh, before going into this uh, G2 China-US and also more specific trade uh, questions, uh, look at it a little bit more in the historic context and what is at stake and what we maybe forget sometimes. If we go uh, three decades back to 1990, since 1990, we have doubled the global GDP. Like in 30 years, we, we, we have doubled global GDP. At the same time, we moved from 5 billion people on our planet to 7 billion people. At the same time, we have reduced the amount of people living in extreme poverty from 45% in 1990 to maybe 12% today. So it is really uh, quite a staggering progress that we have seen during these three decades. Uh, it is incredible that uh, you were able to reduce the amount of people living in extreme poverty from 40 uh, to 10% in three decades at the same time as you were moving from 5 billion to 7 billion. It has never happened in the history of mankind something like this. And why was this possible? Why was it possible to double the global GDP? It was because we traded with each other and we increased the productivity and hope could be increased productivity all over the world and especially in emerging economies. It was because emerging economies also had access to new markets and we were following comparative advantages. I don't say that that system was perfect, but I say we have to be careful so you don't lose the baby with the bathwater. We will have to adjust it. We have to look at inclusiveness, we have to look at sustainability, and we also have to look at um, security when it comes to access uh, to products. But let's also not forget that this recipe that someone has called globalization and say, oh, globalization is like either only bad or only good, I think it has created uh, new opportunities for billions of people. But what we're faced with now is um, a situation where we, of course, uh, will have to question uh, if there are some adjustments that we have to make. This um, approach when it comes to global value chains, like just in time, is that sufficient? Or do we have to also have uh, adding a component that is uh, we, we call uh, just in case? You know, when you have supplies uh, for big factories that you only have supplies for five days and then you need the next container uh, to arrive with, for example, new semiconductors or whatever, shows that we have been a bit um, also um, vulnerable. But nearshoring then to produce closer to where the rest of the production is can make sense. But we also have to be aware that it will increase the cost. And part of the reason why we're seeing inflation now is that, of course, it will increase the cost when uh, we are uh, nearshoring, because then we don't only follow comparative advantages and where is uh, most competitive uh, in delivering this, but we're also uh, 
injecting a resilience component to it. I think it makes sense, but we just have to be aware uh, that uh, we still should stick uh, to a collaborative approach where, where we don't um, bugger your neighbor, but prosper your neighbor. And this is, has been the success recipe. The, I would say that, and, and that's my last point uh, on the G2, uh, China and the US. China and US is around 45% of the global GDP. So almost half of what is happening on this planet happens in those two countries. And when they're competing, and when they're uh, introducing uh, new tariffs on each other, uh, it has impact. But I think it's, it's, it, it's, it will happen. It, it will continue to happen. I don't think it's gonna end up in like a total decoupling with two different systems. But I think in some areas, it will be different systems, and we know it already. You know, you have Twitter in the US, and you have Weibo uh, in, uh, in, in China. You have Amazon uh, in, in the US, and um, you have Alibaba uh, in China, uh, and etc. So I think especially when it comes to technologies, when it comes to the fourth industrial revolution, there will be extreme competition between the two countries. And they both know that those that are on top of these new technologies being artificial intelligence, being internet of things, big data, the new oxygen in the economy, uh, there there will be fierce competition, but they should compete based on the same rules and they should continue uh, to trade with each other. That is uh, the only way to keep up also global prosperity. I think there will be a way to also continue this collaboration, but it's gonna be more bumpy and it will affect the global growth level. Uh, it will shave off some of the global growth, that's for sure. Thank you. Thank you for this insight uh, from your side. Uh, coming back to uh, the trading system, as you know, our multilateral trading system under WTO was not able to deliver core functions of trade liberalization, rulemaking, rule enforcement. The dispute settlement has been dysfunctional, I believe, from non-appointment of appellate board members. There has been discussions about reforming WTO, but it lacks consensus. And especially in today's time, we need a strong WTO to, to make sure there is good balance between the developing and the powerful developed countries. And to continue this agenda of trade liberalization, what would you say to this? <clears throat> I, I agree uh, with the premises here in your uh, in your questions. So, uh, the World Trade Organization uh, is, as you also underlined, Harry, a multilateral organization where Bretton Woods organization, born after uh, the Second World War, to increase trade and prosperity. And uh, WTO has built a framework and rules and regulations that make trade easier. So I think um, in the current circumstances, we also have to protect what we have got. And that's a good thing that the WTO is now a bulwark against unreasonable protectionism, where we have a set of rules that uh, are also very good for emerging economies and developing uh, countries, because if we had no rules, it would be 
only the strongest, biggest economy is deciding everything. So we should not, um, we, we should uh, also be realistic in the, in the sense that the um, WTO uh, has uh, made it possible even after the big financial crisis in 2008 and now the crisis uh, around uh, the pandemic and COVID-19 to uphold a certain international rules regime when it comes to trade. Where it has been uh, most disappointing is that it hasn't really, uh, since uh, Doha in 2001, the Doha round been able to negotiate new major breakthroughs in new areas. And that's uh, a big challenge because the world has changed a lot since 2001. Look at e-commerce. In uh, 2000, uh, there were none of the 10 largest companies in the world that were tech companies. Today, seven out of 10 are tech companies and they didn't even <laughs> exist. 20 years ago, shows how fast things change and the trade system has not changed. I think also on the green side, uh, there is no uh, success in the negotiations on sustainability and the, the green uh, economy. And we are also not making the same, the progress we want on services. There has been a little bit of progress uh, recently on uh, services uh, agreement when it comes to uh, facilitation, but not uh, any major breakthroughs. And uh, we also have uh, negotiations uh, in a lot of uh, other areas, for example, trade uh, investments and facilitation there that is meeting an impasse. And then you have the appellative body where there is no uh, new uh, judges. But overall, WTO is still functioning. Uh, and, and we have to keep it that way. But when there is no deals on multilateral trade agreements, uh, we will see more and more, as you also alluded to uh, and mentioned, uh, Harry, we will see more mega regional trade deals, we'll see more bilateral trade deals. And hopefully, uh, this will lead over time to an ability to formalize these big deals into multilateral deals. What we're also seeing though at the WTO is more of this plurilateral agreements. That means that countries that do agree on doing something together can do it and then later on it can move from a plurilateral where for example 40 countries agree on something into a multilateral agreement. But what we have to avoid is this big spaghetti bowl where you see all the spaghetti and it's like so many deals and so much complexities that, uh, you know, they used to say it was only the WTO director and God that had the full overview of all these trade issues. I know um, God has given up and left it to the WTO director because it got so complex. But, uh, uh, so this this is something where uh, we will see a lot of developments also in the years to come. And we're seeing countries like India, even though doing bilateral trade agreements, it didn't used to do that. India had the policy of not doing it, but now India is also uh, doing this. And we have big trade blocks like ASEAN is, is the third largest trade block in the world. 
that has formed a single market. The e EU with, is the largest market in the world, and they have the single market very well functioning. And you have NAFTA, as we know, the North African and uh, North American free trade Amer uh, market. And I was a Freudian slip because Africa also got their free trade market now. It's, it's huge, it's more than 1.3 uh, billion people. And then we have to hope that these markets then can uh, then uh, speak to each other and that there can be ways of doing deals there that later can be lifted uh, to, uh, the, uh, to the multilateral agreement. No, no, very good point. Uh, the way you said it, I think was uh, very interesting that these mega FTAs will become from 40 countries, maybe grow to a multilateral deal. Uh, but I think these bilateral, multilateral deals are here to stay because as we have seen to, to arrive at a, at a multilateral level across the world, a global deal takes so much time and effort that at least countries know that let's start wherever we agree and then see what happens. Uh, Borge, I'll ask you uh, something uh, which I have been asked many times from the smaller size industries when it comes to trade. Uh, you know, we have seen how uh, climate change discussions have happened. We have seen, you know, uh, World Economic Forum is a leader in uh, conversation around ESG compliance and how companies, how businesses can uh, start looking at it seriously and, and have a long-term strategy and a plan uh, to deal with this. Uh, I do understand large companies have this framework uh, and transparency. Uh, the smaller companies are, uh, they are working with their vendors, partners and everyone else to, to really work on this. But the fear in the small-scale industries are that that there would be another trade barrier that will come in, which will affect them very soon, which will be a kind of climate tax or something, uh, and which will make them further uncompetitive. Uh, because if you look at countries like India are coal dependent for another 25 years, I think so. Uh, and, and so are many other countries, which which I'm aware of. So I'm, I'm just thinking about it. These questions come up many times. Is there is there a suitable way to approach this? So um, I think we all see that now uh, the cost of climate change is very high. Uh, we're reminded about this uh, just, just uh, I, I, I'm not saying it's a, it's a connection between climate change and the tornadoes you saw in the US now, but it's illustrating the changing weather pattern uh, of the world. And we know it will be worse uh, if climate change uh, is uh, still uh, moving uh, on and making our planet uh, burning. We've seen it in um, with uh, the wildfires, we've seen it in droughts, is in, in uh, floods in Europe this summer, for example. So it, it's a really bad pattern. So we will need to keep on growing, but we have to 
try to decouple this growth from growth in CO2 emissions. But we also need technology breakthroughs uh, in this uh, because mo a lot of this, at least half of it, has to come through technologies that we don't have today. So the problem is, for example, not coal in itself. The problem is the pollution that coal leads to a coal-fired power plants. One is local pollution that we know from New Delhi and other uh, dense cities uh, in India. But then you have uh, CO2 that is a global thing. But if you can capture and store the CO2, then coal in itself is not a problem, it's the CO2 emission. So I think in the coming decade, we really need to put more effort into uh, scientific developments and breakthroughs. You know, 10 years ago, uh, solar was 10 times the price of today. Today, it is competitive without subsidies in many countries. So we will need to see these kind of breakthroughs. But to your concrete question then, until that happens, how will then, uh, will some uh, uh, like advanced economies like the EU that has discussed this carbon uh, adjustment uh, board uh, tax, like um, a border tax, that you will then have to pay an extra tariff if you bring, for example, steel from a country where the steel is mainly produced by coal, fired power plants, will you have to pay an extra tax? So um, the challenge with this, though, is that uh, it can lead uh, to also real trade wars. Today, we are seeing trade conflicts and we're seeing some tariffs and all this, but we don't see a total trade war globally, let's face it, fortunately, touch wood, you know. Uh, so I, I think everyone has to see that we will have to, over time, put the price on carbon because the cost of inaction far exceeds the cost of action. But the timing has to be of a, a come at a time where there are alternatives, because if there are no alternatives, people feel that they are cornered and when people feel they're cornered and especially countries then they uh, can take measures that are not in the interest of, of, of everyone. Thank you. Uh, there's so many more questions and, and, and debate that we can have on this subject. I know you but but I'm always thankful for your deep insights. Thank you for listening to CII Podcasts.